You're listening to Defence Research, a podcast on enhancing defence capability through groundbreaking research. G'day ladies and gents and welcome back to Defence Research. As you know, this is a podcast that talks about defence research for the national interest, bringing together defence, academia and industry. Now this is a very special episode because this is the final episode of our first season. And to be honest, we've had a cracker of a year talking with our academics, our industry partners across SMEs and primes, and our defence stakeholders. But like the end of every uh, season, you should generally have a wrap up. So today I've got the Director of the Defence Research Institute, Vice Admiral Retired, uh, Professor Paul Madison in to talk about what defence research was like in 2021. In particular, how we went in a year that was a lot more like 2020 than we had hoped. Paul, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Mick. How are you doing? I I am great. And uh, the reason I'm great is because we've had quite an interesting year and there's been some challenges. But from your perspective, what are some of the highlights for defence research uh, during 2021? Well, one of the highlights right off the bat is that this podcast was recognised internationally for its excellence. So congratulations, Mick. I I I think you found a an audience that was really interested in you know the finer aspects of defense research what it really means as a an instrument of national power in australia what it means for academics and defense industry and defense defense science technology group uh, like-minded partners to come together to uh, accelerate the concept of capability cycle and you know international settings are kind of driving that acceleration as well um, so a lot has happened it's been really exciting and on behalf of the university you know we've driven a lot of research activity and in so doing i think we have you know raised the level of priority at the university of new south wales around how important defense research is not only uh, to strengthening australia's national interest but to the bottom line of the university mm. and i think uh one one team that uh, often doesn't get a shout out and i'll i'll do this now that you, you've acknowledged the uh, the a recognition we got this year, which was quite good. I didn't even know that we were up for the award until after we uh, won it, which is good. It's always it's always good to keep the host out of the loop on these things. But um, it, it's not it's not me that drives the uh, success of this show. It's it's Brooke, our uh, our executive producer. It's it's Michael and John, our technical producers, and also Kylie, uh, the head of the creative media unit here, who supported us and even provided us with a voiceover. Uh, which is it's always good to bring some of the leadership down back into the trenches and put them behind a microphone. Um, so thanks very much for that recognition, Paul, yeah. and. And some of the interesting things you've talked about are driving defence research and raising it inside the university, a lot of it has been engaged through networks. We have our own professional networks. Uh, that's how we get the conversation started. Uh, but also there are established networks, industry-focused networks. And there's a couple of those networks that have actually helped us uh, drive engagement with our researchers because some of our researchers come to defence research quite cold. Uh, some of them come uh, with a little bit of knowledge and some of them are former ADF or Department of Defence people themselves. And they're actually quite easy. They, they, they don't take too much um, in, encouragement to work with defence. But um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the networks that we've been working with this year uh, to help engage our academics and drive those industry partnerships? Yeah, certainly. You know, one that comes to mind, obviously, is DMTC. Mm-hmm. So Mark Harge and his team in Melbourne um, has really grown that enterprise and 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 created a... A, a means f- for defense and industry and academia to really come together and, and fuse on the, the priority problems that need to be solved um, in terms of sustaining that competitive advantage capability for the ADF. 
Um, you know, one example there with DMTC is, uh, you know, around one of our researchers that has been funded uh, in the in the science of chemistry to you know do some really interesting s- maritime sensing mm-hmm. r- research. So you know, working with DMTC, it also brings it, it opens doors. Um, you know, it's all about relationships. It's all about trust. So you you meet others, you find ways to collaborate. Uh, one door leads to another open door, that kind of thing. And and you, what we do at the Defense Research Institute is pull researchers through those doors with us. Mm. And uh, and and when we do that, um, they see their success as academics reflected in what they can bring uh, to the um, sort of the ADF capability uh, suite and. And, and so, you know, one researcher at a time, we're, we're building that um, mass here in Australia to, to drive that acceleration that is so essential given uh, the rate at which technology is evolving and the rate at which um, potential adversaries like um, China are, are also um, arriving at leap ahead uh, capability points. So that's one. Uh, another one, you know, the New South Wales Defence Innovation Network. So as you know, there's a number, I think every state now, has a, um, a defense research and innovation uh, network. They all have different acronyms, uh, uh, and I haven't memorized them all. But um, uh, and, and together, they form the Australian Defense and Security University Network, uh, which is a, a name, but not a there's, – there's no structure around it. These are mm-hmm. state-based um, organizations. And we, um, we're one of nine universities in, in New South Wales that, that's part of a – a part of the Defense Innovation Network. And it's all about bringing uh, universities together, researchers, uh, SMEs, uh, out-of-state and offshore um, in- investors to g- generate more momentum and attract more defense research activity. And, you know, we've really enjoyed um, being part of the Defense Innovation Network in New South Wales. And we've had um, researchers funded through the DIN uh, to do work on uh, undersea sensing, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, space uh, situational awareness, mm-hmm. and more, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I see this as a, you know, these these state networks that that have that have uh, emerged over the past several years, they've done that in response to the signals coming from, uh, from the Commonwealth, uh, which is good, you know, from mm-hmm. the, from the 2016 white paper on to the defense strategic update and force structure plan of 2020. The signals from government and the funding that's been allocated are all combining to gear uh, the the defense research ecosystem more towards generating more mass, more 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 output, and and, and so that's all of you know a very positive thing. Um, back uh, when there there were some windows of travel opportunity uh, over, <laughs> over the year, and one of them was back in May or June when I traveled out to. Uh, out to Perth uh, mm-hmm. at the invitation of the University of uh, Western Australia, and they had just established a defense and security institute, mm-hmm. similar to what uh, we're doing here at UNSW. And so we went out to talk to them um, to explore how we could collaborate as um, as as group of eight universities and, and find ways, you know, points of intersection uh, where we could bring our researchers together f- from both coasts um, to fuse on. Uh, high priority uh, research challenges with defense and with the defense science technology group, and we um, they, they took me to meet the uh, Western Australia equivalent of the Defense Innovation Network, and I can't remember the acronym, but it's the mm-hmm. same sort of thing. And, and it was great to see how you know on the West Coast um, they were gearing towards that 
defense research value proposition. Mm. And you go down to Adelaide, it's the same thing. You go down to Melbourne, it's the same thing. They've just stood up one in, uh, in, um, in Queensland. Um, so it's, it's really an exciting time actually, uh, to be part of this growing momentum mm. around setting the future ADF operator up for even greater success. And the, the highlight of travel that is in a normal year exists, but I think for those of us who are able to travel to places like Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide, uh, in a year like 2021, it was quite special because the connections formed with people in person are almost uh, doubly um, strong and relevant during a year when most of the time you're interacting uh, on a screen because, as you know, um, and most of our listeners will know and have experienced, a lot of us have been doing work uh, from home, uh, particularly in the in the in this space where you work in a knowledge economy, and there's only so far that can go in terms of building those relationships. So travel's been quite good, mm. but we've also had events online that have proved uh, quite successful. And one of those we had quite recently, which was a data science event. So the data science event we had with uh, Defence, it was called Defence Plus Data. Uh, you you gave a bit of a talk uh, there at the start, uh, which was quite good. And, and kind of highlighted to some of our researchers the defence value proposition. What other areas, I suppose, in, uh, in the university are we working with industry and government partners to build up uh, their capability? Um, we talk a lot about the tech, uh, but there, I guess there's people, there's workforce, there's, you know, there's information. What other areas uh, do you find um, 2021 has exposed and uh, provided opportunities for us to work with defence and industry? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> great question. Um, we, we look for opportunities to contribute across the entire spectrum of defense activity. Mm. So it's not just about, um, you know, hypersonics or uh, overhead uh, AI sensing, uh, although we're, we're into that big time. But um, I'll give you an example. Um, we've done some work for Air Force around um, uh, the future of work and, 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 uh, and how their organization organizational structure might be re uh, oriented um, mm. to, to, to meet the ways that society is changing. Uh, and, you know, the, we've seen these disruptive changes brought on by the pandemic. So, you know, that, that kind of um, research um, is coming from the faculty of business mm. in, in Kensington and, and the school of business in, in Canberra. So, you know, you don't often think when, when you think defense research, you, you don't often think about the, you know, the faculty of business, but there's, you know, a, a lot there mm. um, that that can be brought to bear in in helping the ADF and and defense, and I would add the agencies and other government departments uh, to, to sort of evolve and become more effective and efficient going forward. Another example is a really interesting collaboration uh, that UNSW did um, with the University of Melbourne and the University of Adelaide. A little bit of help from Macquarie and ECU as well in a mass influence um, information warfare uh, research project uh, out of um, information warfare division and with some DST uh, support. And we looked at uh, Facebook, we looked at uh, Cambridge Analytica, we looked at the Russian internet, um, uh, internet research agency, research agency. Thanks. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and produced a report, which I, I know is providing value and informing how the ADF will want to approach that information part of, you know, the cyber EW and, and, and influence those, those components of information warfare. Uh, I, I think there's a growing and necessary 
focus around how we will deal with disinformation, misinformation, um, countering uh, those, uh, and you know, sustaining that confidence um, and focus uh, and clarity as we sort of accelerate across the spectrum of conflict um, at some point here mm. in the future. So, you know, I often hear people describing universities as being hyper-competitive. In fact, I was in a conversation just the other day with a, a professor from uh, the UK who was describing his experience in Australia as universities, you know, being hyper-competitive among one another. But that, that culture is changing here in Australia mm. and, it, and it's, it's changing partially due to settings that are coming out from government. For example, the Department of Education has just released a what they're calling a Trailblazers, Trailblazer Universities program, mm. which is intended to, um, it's intended to drive greater integration of industry and academia in, 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 in uh, accelerating translation of research and, and commercialization um, into jobs and growth. And the, the way that the, the call uh, for the expressions of interest came out was that there was language that made it clear that universities collaborating together is a strength. Mm. Universities going alone is okay, but not preferred. And so, you know, what I just described to you there with that project we did with Melbourne and, and Adelaide, that actually also has, as you would expect, um, led to um, deep personal relationships forming uh, mm. and, and trust-based relationships between academics and professional staffs in Adelaide, Melbourne, and, and, and Canberra, Sydney. Mm -hmm. Um which then generates more opportunities. Mm. Um, and, and so this is leading to a breaking down of those um, competitive sort of stovepipes and, and hopefully will lead to smarter, you know, uh, collaborations where the, where the right researchers in, uh, are, are in the right room together, mm. um, accelerating a particular capability. You know, for instance, in... Um, you know, hypersonics and directed energy. I mean, there are points of excellence uh, in several universities. Mm. And if you talk to a, if you talk to a, uh, a hypersonics specialist, his or her community will include folks from several universities. It might mm. be, it'll be, you know, University of Queensland, University of South Queensland, uh, Adelaide, mm -hmm. um, S Sydney, uh, UNSW, RMIT. You know, so, so it's, I, I think we're, we're moving rapidly towards a more whole of country approach to solving and addressing some of these challenges and getting new capability out there for the, for the operator. And I think there's a recognition that there's enough uh, to go around. If, if you know what I mean, mm. it, it doesn't need to be too competitive, you know, 270 billion in new capability for the ADF in this decade. And of that, I think three to $4 billion is already sort of allocated around research across the tiered readiness levels. Mm. That's, um, that, that should be enough um, to keep all universities increasingly gearing towards a defense and leading to great outcomes for, for the country. Uh, and the Trailblazer Initiative, as you mentioned, is quite interesting because UNSW, as most of our listeners will know, and if they don't, I'll tell them now, um, we're, we're one of the top um, entrepreneurial and commercialization universities in Australia. Uh, but we also have... Uh, some great partners across the academic community who do commercialization in different ways. And I think that's one of the benefits is understanding how the different levels of 
commercialization of different practices across the teams, um, and they are teams, teams of universities, not just one, as you mentioned, can really help each other learn and, and push forward. And one, one very interesting aspect about the Trailblazer Initiative, it's run by the Department of Education. It's got defence as a pillar in there. Uh, we've seen the ARC, the Australian Research Council, also leading some defence calls. So not just universities are understanding uh, that there's a cooperative element towards how we drive research into industry. We're also seeing government departments interacting a lot more with each other in driving towards a defence research value proposition, um, which is absolutely uh, fantastic because there's been some really big things happen this year, uh, apart from our success in defence research, um, but things like the AUKUS announcement. Uh, so I guess from your perspective, uh, you know, running a defence research institute, how, how is the AUKUS uh, announcement significant, I suppose, for the future of uh, defence research and education? I think it's huge. The, the cornerstone of, 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 of AUKUS is the, um, is the SSN, mm. you know, a, a nuclear reactor-driven uh, fleet here in, here in Australia. Um, and, of course, that was exciting for us at UNSW because um, uh, we're the only university in the country that has a nuclear engineering program mm. uh, underway. We... we offer um, a master's in nuclear engineering. We've run some grad cert programs for various elements of, uh, of defense. You know, we have a really good relationship with ANSTO. Uh, yeah, so, so we, you know, our first sort of response there was to uh, connect with Navy and to connect with the nuclear uh, propelled submarine task force mm -hmm. and, and, you know, anticipating that part of that campaign plan that uh, is being developed uh, over the next 18 months for acquiring a nuclear powered capability in Australia, part one, one key line of operation would certainly be upskilling uh, education and training uh, across the fleet and across the, um, uh, those elements of, of Navy that, that support and maintain um, ships and submarines, that, that we, we would be, be part of that solution. And so we're really excited to be in that conversation. Mm. But the other part of AUKUS that immediately sort of dawned on me was, you know, the, the, the language between the three leaders around, you know, accelerating collaboration and capability development. And this is something that we've been talking about at the DRI since, since day one, Mick, mm. is the threat is evolving so rapidly that there is no longer, um, there's no longer time and space to sort of be process driven in our three countries uh, and among and between one another around the time it takes and the and the approval gates and the you know the foreign disclosure issues and the ITAR and the national technology uh, industrial base there there are so many ways to to slow mm -hmm. um, what what we know needs to be done so so what I saw around AUKUS is a desire to um, move past the status quo to to make it easier to accept more risk, um, to, to bring um, more Australians, Brits, and Americans t together in, in a, on an equal footing, um, best of the best, and, and drive hard mm. on new sovereign capability, but capability that will be interchangeable in a, in a multi-domain operating environment. So I see, um, you know, more more work together on hypersonics, directed energy, on um, on undersea sensing, on uh, cyber, quantum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are key sort of disruptive technology areas 
that we know we've got to really drive hard at here in order to avoid being on the wrong side of that competitive advantage equation. I, I know there, there will be bureaucratic elements in all three countries that will find it hard to, to kind of appreciate and hoist in the strategic intent of AUKUS. Um, and, and, and I hope that the political whole of government uh, bureaucracies and, and, and the uh, senior you know, military and, and defense leadership teams in all countries will continue to press hard here, press the envelope, um, identify impediments and, and either remove them or blow through them. Because I you know, fundamentally believe that that is exactly what's required here, certainly in Australia's national interest. And if that works over the next you know, several years and we have real tangible outcomes that we can show as examples, that, that will be huge in terms of also exciting um, other members, you know, the other two Five Eyes partners in Canada and New Zealand, but also key regional uh, partners like Japan, South Korea, mm. um, Singapore, India, and other European key sort of NATO uh, partners like France, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Norway, um, you know, et cetera. And, you know, really that's what we need to see as a, as a global community of, of, um, of democracies is, is to really find a way um, to, to row in the canoe together, mm. especially here in the Indo-Pacific, to, to shape and deter, you know, those two key mm. lines from the strategic update, um, hopefully to then avoid having to respond, mm. which is the third uh, pillar. Uh, so so I, I, I think this is a really exciting time in that regard. And, and I, I think AUKUS is, is a great opportunity. And I, I hope that it's the full potential of, of the strategic intent, the way it's been communicated, mm. uh, w will be realized. And a couple of the technologies you mentioned in there are the ones that might not necessarily have had the headlines um, because they don't have the word nuclear in them. Um, and some of them, it's quite good that they don't have the word nuclear in them, uh, to be honest. But one one constant theme we've seen throughout this year, uh, throughout the engagement when you and I talked to some of our prime partners, has been the, the quality of the hypersonics research at UNSW and our partners uh, up north in Queensland. And that large hypersonics community that sort of started in Australia um, with, with Ray Stalker. Our listeners have had quite a few hypersonics researchers on the show. Um, yeah. They might... Uh, they might realise that uh, I like talking to hypersonic researchers because I don't understand anything about it, but I know it's really, really cool. Um, and we've got some amazing people doing that research. Yeah. Prior to AUKUS, there was also a large announcement from government uh, that fits in with our hypersonics people, our composites and materials people. And that was uh, the announcement that Australia is going to be a sovereign uh, power in terms of developing its own guided weapons capability as a deterrent, as you mentioned. Um, so what, what does things like the, the potential guided weapons enterprise mean for research institutions like UNSW? Well, it's an opportunity for academia to really uh, be invited into that uh, triangle that I often talk about, you know, defense mm. industry and, and, and government, and, mm. and, and government being defense and DST. So uh, having a sovereign research capability, you know, CSIRO, uh, but, mm. but also the, the broader sort of university research ecosystem, that's huge. And, and having it increasingly geared, um, I mean, you know, the majority of researchers at a group of eight university are, are not thinking defense um, mm. at every instance. Uh, that, that makes sense. But increasingly, you know, more 
and more, uh, especially those who are re- realize that they're duly that they're the technology that they're driving at as a passion mm. has a dual use application in defense. And, and so, so there's the, the, the sovereign enterprise, you know, the, the, the full sort of life cycle of a capability being conceived, built, deployed, sustained, maintained, re- replenished, mm. uh, uh, in Australia is, is huge. So, uh, this is a great opportunity for our hypersonics, as you say, our, our researchers to, to, to make a huge contribution. We're, we're looking at um, uh, building a, um, a, a hypersonics and directed energy uh, research facility mm-hmm. and not too far from uh, the ACT um, with a view to uh, working, uh, having a space where our researchers can drive their uh, programs forward, but to, but also in, inviting in industry with us as, as partners. Mm-hmm. So there's several defense primes that have um, real interest in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can name a few. Uh, you know, BAE Systems Australia, Lockheed Martin Australia, um, Northrop Grumman Australia, mm-hmm. and they see the opportunity to. Well, they they have to be part of this sovereign guided weapons enterprise in one way or another. And mm-hmm. so, again, this is like AUKUS. This is, this is a real opportunity. Uh, to do things differently uh, at scale uh, with sort of a, uh, a longer term uh, vision. And, and there's confidence, I think, building across academia and defense industry that government um, is committed to this for the long term because it's, it flows from a strategic imperative and that, that imperative is to uh, defend uh, mm. Australia, Australians, Australian infrastructure and the values and the principles that undermine uh, not only Australian society, but the free and open sort of global trading system that from which Australia's prosperity is derived. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think there's only an upside here as we continue to put structure around greater collaboration. Now, I've got one more one more theme that stood out in 2021 and also stood out on the show before I then get to the final question. The final question is different. Uh, for you today than it is for our guests because you already answered it in, in episode one. So I thought I'd change it up. But before we get to that, I'll talk about the, this final theme. Um, if Australia's uh, year of 2021 has been, you know, the year of the COVID resurgence or it's been the year of uh the God of Weapon Enterprise, then it's been the year of AUKUS. One thing that's been happening throughout and tends to feature in a lot of these discussions is space research. We know that Australia has its own space agency now, which does a lot of advocacy and is generating a lot of momentum. We know that we've got Australian companies very, very close to having their own launch capability. And this year, UNSW launched their own satellite. Uh, we didn't do the launch. We, uh, we we put it on board a Rocket Labs rocket uh, flying out of New Zealand. It was nice to keep it in the region. Um, but we now have a satellite that we are mission controlling uh, that was designed by our researchers. It was um, built by our our satellite team here at UNSW. It was then launched by Rocket Labs and it was flown by us and they did some really cool things, which are, I don't know if this is uh, a, the cynic in me or not, but we probably shouldn't name things like separating satellites as a divorce, but we know that the satellite's divorced um, and they're flying in formation happily uh, together and they're doing some really cool experiments on that. Um, space has kind of been ticking along in the background for for all of 2021 uh, and some big leaps and bounds ahead. Um, where do you see space going in the future in terms of university engagement with industry partners and government? Well, first of all, it's an absolutely um, critical operating domain. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about sovereign capability, you cannot operate in that joint 
uh, coalition uh, all domain um, environment uh, without uh, fully leveraging uh, overhead capability. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that capability uh, continues to be owned by another sovereign entity, even though you're in a strategic alliance with with uh, the with the U.S., um, that's still a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've seen vulnerability through the supply chain disruption brought on by the pandemic. So there's a the, the, it feeds into that sovereign sovereign narrative. So, so Australia, I see, you know, driving towards a kind of like the guided weapons enterprise, a sovereign space enterprise. I mean, that's those are the signals that we're we're getting. Uh, we have just like in hypersonics and so many other. Our sort of research domains. We have some amazing uh, world-leading researchers in Australia, not just at UNSW, but across the country. They will be able, more able, I think, to bring their discoveries forward and find a rich environment for um, funding and experimentation, like like we've done here uh, at UNSW with the uh, Air Force-supported M- M2 um, satellites that you that you spoke to. I see, you know, there's a lot of work to come around uh, intelligent uh, satellite constellations mm-hmm. with a in-orbit um, machine learning capability um, that will um, be another sort of transformative element in 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 how uh, militaries operate. So, bringing AI, bringing quantum sensing, mm-hmm. uh, quantum timing. Uh, in, in, into how we design and and operate space capabilities, I think is going to be really exciting. Um, one of the Trailblazer program national manufacturing priorities that has been highlighted is space. Mm. So clearly, you know, government is driving hard. You know, industry, you know, companies like Airbus, for example. I mean, huge, um, huge space capabilities and huge. Um, you know, R and D um, capacities back uh, in Europe, um, but I think in, in order to gain even greater momentum, bringing our researchers from all universities uh, that have space expertise together, where it makes sense, in partnership with industry to drive on uh, Commonwealth uh, st- strategic objectives, will be great, and. Um, uh, UNSW, especially UNSW Canberra, mm-hmm. uh, is really well positioned in that regard. Um, as as I, you know, as we've said before on this show, and I can't remember if you um, interviewed Professor Russell Boyce. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah you did. So yeah, I mean, Russell is an an amazing um, individual, and you know, with through his leadership, you know, UNSW Canberra is the only, I think it's the only place in in Australia where in orbit missions have been. Conceived, uh, designed, built, integrated, and then operated. Uh, you know, from a mm. from a campus. The the only the only link in that chain that you mentioned was the, the launch provider. Mm. Um, and we know that companies in Australia are are rapidly, you know, moving to that sovereign launch capability. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we're really well positioned. Now I could I could talk about space for for a while because uh, it'd have to be the second most popular topic on this on this show uh, outside of hypersonics. And again, I think it's because of my love of science fiction. But our listeners are probably coming close to the end of their treadmill run or the end of their commute, and uh, they probably want to want to know a little bit about what's happening in the future. Um, and we normally prognosticate on this show about the future and what what 
the vision would be between academia, industry, and government engagement. But I'm going to slightly change that. Um, you've talked about the defence strategic update. You've talked about some of the strategic and geopolitical signals that have been uh, echoing across the globe. Uh, we're recording this in the week where the diplomatic boycotts of Beijing have been Beijing Olympics have been announced. Uh, it's quite significant. Um, we're also uh, recording this on a, on a wet and rainy day uh, in summer in Canberra, where it's normally normally about forty degrees. So the uh, the graduating class of the Defence Force Academy, where we're located, had one of the best graduations, I would say, um, definitely better than mine when I graduated, because the temperature was quite nice, and I'm I'm sure there are a lot less a um, lot less trainee officers falling over on the parade. Um, but that's strange, and I guess. One thing you've written out about and, and commented on publicly this year is uh, the need for a cohesive approach in identifying and approaching the security threats to Australia's national interests. What do you see uh, as Australia's most significant security threat at the current point in time and other challenges that might be of interest for Australian researchers to engage with defence to help solve some of those challenges? Yeah, thanks, Mick. Um I, I see two significant security challenges. One is the Chinese Communist Party um, and the uh, trajectory that Xi Jinping has taken the party on since 2012 and most particularly since the 19th Congress in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've, he's pretty much um, uh, stopped uh, the rise of capitalism and, and, and private ownership in China, he stopped it in its tracks. You know, people like Jack Ma are, mm. you know, not quite uh, as don't quite have the spring in their step that they did uh, ten years ago. Um, and the the aspiration around the, the the Chinese Communist aspiration around shaping the international rules based system in a way that they would be much more comfortable with, one which uh, champions a state control over mm. individual freedoms, um, and their drive towards shaping influence. Um, in multilateral institutions like the United Nations mm -hmm. is really concerning. You know, concurrent with that is, of course, the extraordinary sort of expansion of the uh, various arms of the People's Liberation Army and, and their drive towards an expeditionary capability. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, recently the United States uh, military identified um, China as their pacing challenge mm -hmm. um, and Russia as a, a near-peer threat. I mean, this is significant kind of statement coming out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, this is not, this is no longer 1991 and, and uh, Schwarzkopf and, and shock and awe and everybody watching mm. uh, a fairly one-way uh, drive in, in, in Iraq. This is 30 years later. And, and if we're driving towards conflict, it's, um, it's a bit eye-watering. Mm -hmm. So clearly that's one. Um, so, so, sort of combined with that though is, you know, you know, there's a lot of people writing about the relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and when you see the rhetoric uh, coming out of Beijing and Moscow around uh, the Taiwan Strait on one hand, mm -hmm. uh, the Ukraine border on the other, you know, I, I wonder what the next great disruption might be. Um, but a concurrent move uh, would be um, extraordinarily challenging mm -hmm. for all of us. We don't talk much about Russia here in Australia. I think it's due to geography. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also a huge concern in, in America and, and Europe. The, the, the other different, but I think uh, hugely um, important um, security challenge is climate. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, climate, climate security, the term climate security is, is um, becoming more and more 
sort of relevant in 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 doctrine and, and writings. You know, President Biden on on arriving in the White House identified climate as the existential challenge to humanity, um, which is quite a, obviously a change from the previous president. Mm-hmm. And, and, and militaries around the world are, and including here in Australia, are seeing themselves increasingly pulled into uh, climate-driven operations. And uh, militaries need to figure out, uh, and governments in their resourcing of militaries need to figure out uh, how they are going to protect uh, readiness for uh, high-end combat, if it comes to that, um, while also uh, generating and sustaining a capability to um, protect Australians, in our case, uh, Australian infrastructure, um, and to respond to uh, humanitarian dis- uh, disaster response operations in our, in our in our region, such as you know the increasing intensity and and frequency of of, of cyclone uh, Cat Five cyclones. And, and and the other thing about climate is it has the potential if 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 we cannot uh, remain at 1.5 and if we end up you know driving to 2.0 and and beyond I mean the 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 science seems to suggest at the moment that we're driving to about 2.4 in this century or more mm. and the science also um, suggests that the disruption to h- human um, activity. Um, is almost um, unimaginable, mm. and and so that disruption in inevitably leads to triggers that, that drive conflict, mm-hmm. and and I I'm I'm not sure we're fully appreciating that, you know, a, a China 1.4 billion, um, if uh, coastal uh, fish protein uh, supply collapses, if um, you know, Himalaya uh, sourced major river systems um, fail uh, if agrarian communities and networks uh, collapse. You know, that that leads to not only internal and domestic uh, challenges for the Chinese Communist Party, but it leads to other challenges with regional neighbors in terms of uh, mass migration, mm-hmm. and, and which also that could lead to other uh, pressures that undermine the fragility of some democracies. And, you know, all of this in aggregate could really lead to a greater demand signal um, for the Australian Defence Force to engage mm. across the spectrum of operations alongside our allies. So I, I just, you know, a long way of saying uh, China and climate, mm-hmm. I think are um, the, the, the two big areas that we need to continue to focus on. Well, a long way of saying is great for this show because people want to listen to us have a long way of saying things. So, Paul, thank you very much for coming on the final episode for season one of uh, of Defence Research and summing up uh, 2021, what it's been and uh, where we're likely to go in the future in 2022. Yep, looking forward to next year. And we'll come back uh, a bit more recharged than we have in the last couple of summers. Thanks again, ladies and gents, for listening to Defence Research. We will continue our conversations with our researchers as well as defence and industry stakeholders to highlight how academic research supports defence and national security capability development. Thank you for your time. If you'd like to know more about Defence Research at UNSW, visit the Defence Research Institute website at dri.unsw.edu.au. You can also follow the Defence Research Institute on LinkedIn and Twitter at UNSWDRI. 
Opinions expressed by individuals on the show are those of the individual unless stated otherwise. Defence Research is copyright of UNSW.